Just Go With It is a podcast hosted by two millennials who swear. And also, it's about horror films, so listener discretion is advised. We will put specific content warnings in the show notes. Boo! <laughs> Hello, welcome to Just School With It, a podcast where we talk about how society influences our favorite, and sometimes least favorite, horror movies. And today, we're talking about The Descent, and I'm Nikki. And I'm Kate. And before we get into the movie, we want to talk about Patreon. Hell yeah. So, we have five Patreon tiers, starting at just $1 a month, because we know that people aren't made of money. Here's a quick rundown of the benefits of each level. So, at $1 a month, you're an honorary ghoul. You get Love thanked it. on the show because you're awesome, and you will also have access to a monthly newsletter. It's if a good you... newsletter. Oh, it's a great newsletter. We've had one out so far, and it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know what I'm reading, check out the newsletter. Uh, da, da, da. So if you pledge $2 a month, you're a ghoul in training. That means you get early access to episodes and a handwritten postcard for your first month on top of all of the previous benefits. Want to pledge $5 a month? That makes you a ghoul friend. You get to help decide a movie each month. You get access to the Patreon-only Discord, and then you get all of the benefits of the previous levels. If you really love what we're doing and you want to support us at $10 a month, that means you're a certified ghoul. And you would get to have a simul watch of a horror film with (sighs) Nick and Kate, which is basically a reproduction of how we started this. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. And then you would also get access to exclusive AMAs. Ask me anything. Within reason. We'll answer most things, but I imagine there's like yeah, one I'll go thing. For it. Yeah. We'll it's answer almost thing. anything. <laughs> it's Don't about ask my teeth. Me. Don't ask me about <laughs> my teeth. <laughs> Don't ask me about the movie Geppetto. Don't. <laughs> I have nothing to say. I have nothing more to say about Geppetto. I will not be taking any questions I'm at this ash- time. I'm ashamed. <laughs> and then finally, if you join our Patreon at $20 a month, you are one of us, one of us. And you get exclusive access to a live stream of a horror game yeah. in addition to everything previously. So at $20 a month, you get the live stream, you get a simul watch of a horror film, you have access to AMAs, a vote for a movie each month, access to Patreon and Discord, early access to episodes, a handwritten postcard your first month, thanked on the show, because we got to brag about how cool our patrons are, and access to a monthly newsletter. That was a whirlwind. Look at all that stuff. Look at and, it all. And listen, I have so many postcards. So like we got to I've gotta, seen them. Yeah. They're pretty though. They're good postcards. They're good postcards. You want these yeah. postcards. You want these postcards. Let us send you mail. <laughs> Give us your address. <laughs> Give us your address. <laughs> anyway, Absolutely those are terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the Patreon tiers. You can find us at patreoncom with it. You should do it. I promise it's worth it. You can't wait to see us play a ghost game where oh Kate 100% screams all the time and I die constantly. Yep. Good uh, stuff. <laughs> we're basing all of this on how we play Phasmophobia. So yeah. it could it could change, but it's pretty likely that I will continue being the person that screams all the time and you will continue being ballsy and dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I will never make it too far into a game. That's just how it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, now we can talk about The Descent. And I'm so excited. All right. I don't have a ton of facts for this one just because, like, I didn't have too much, really. But I know that Nerd Corner is going to be good. So don't worry. Um, Let me read you my facts. 
All right. So it was made in 2005, which, you know, anybody can Google that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you come uh, here for the nitty gritty You come here for the facts yeah. that I get right off of Google, okay? <laughs> uh, it was written and directed by Neil Marshall. He also directed Hellboy and two episodes of Game of Thrones. He, he's done other things, too. Those were just the two that I was like, I know those. <laughs> so I don't know what episodes, but maybe someday I'll find out. Or, you know, if you find out, let me know. <laughs> uh, the music was by David uh, Julian. He did music for Christopher Nolan's early films, like most of them. Like, I think all of them. I don't know. But they were they worked together. They were big fans of each other, I guess. Uh, and the budget was $3.5 That was in pounds. And I oh. don't know the... Uh, so it's way more in U.S. dollars. Okay. Yeah. So the budget was 3.5 million pounds. But then for some reason, the amount that they made was in American dollars. So they made 57.1 million dollars. Oh, boy. Okay. So yeah. I guess I do not know the conversion rate off the top I of my head. Either. And even if I did, I can't do the math. But I'm guessing it's somewhere around 5 million American dollars. Yeah. That's my uh, expert guess. Either way, I think they uh I think they made it back. It sounds like it sounds like they're okay. million dollars. I think they're, they're fine. fine. Yeah. Uh and also it was filmed in the UK, obviously the the pounds. Uh and all the caves were were set pieces because what? it was too the caves that they were in was it was a set because it was too dangerous to film inside of a like an actual cave. Oh, that the makes direct, sense. Yeah, the director was like, "No, no, no, that's probably not okay." So they filmed the whole thing on like sets. <laughs> Okay. Well, they fooled me. Yeah, right? Like, I was like, I didn't know that. <laughs> there is a really cool thing, though. I can get to it later if you want, but it's about the stone that the caves are made of. <gasps> Ooh, yeah, please. I would love to hear about the stone. So there's Even this, like... We... Go for it. <laughs> We're just both staring at each other like, are you going to go? Are you going to go? Gonna go? <laughs> Tell me about the stones. Okay, so there's this trope that I don't really cover in my trope section, but it's like... Basically props to the audience for noticing just like wildly minute details that end up being foreshadowing. And mm -hmm. so one of the things is like, yeah, this tunnel looks like limestone, which is easy or like prone to cave-ins unless yeah. you have supports in it. And so it's like, yeah, they obviously knew from looking at the stone in the movie, props to geologists. I don't know the difference between stone. I took geology, but it was basically <laughs> a jocks for rocks. Nope. Rocks for jocks class. <laughs> I love jocks for rocks. They love rocks. <laughs> they love rocks. I love jocks sports are pro and I rocks. love rocks. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what limestone looks like anymore. I did at one point. I uh, don't know why, but watching it, I went, that's limestone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've never taken like a class in my life. I was just for some reason lines? was like, limestone. <gasps> one of my past lives, I was just lives? an amazing geologist. Yeah. See, I looked at him like, yep, that's stone. Real cave right there. I don't know why. I was just like, look at that limestone. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I got an eye for rocks. Uh, an eye for spaghetti? Or a I mine got a for nose spaghetti? for spaghetti. Nose for spaghetti and an, but eye, I got for an rocks. eye for rocks. Okay, we're still waiting on the other senses. Tune we'll in next there. week. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was it. It was just the, the limestone was like prone to cave ins. Yeah, well, there are other, like, details that people found, but the this is the one that was relevant to what That's you said. That's so cool. Yeah. I didn't know it was prone to cave -ins. Listen, I knew it was limestone. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, it's like unstable or not strong enough to support itself. So you should have external supports. And it's clear from <clears throat> the lack of supports that this is an unexplored system and that Juno's lying to them. Juno! Fucking Juno. <laughs> she made me so mad. Listen, we don't have to get into it now because we'll get into it later. We'll get into it. But I was mad. <laughs> I was so mad. <laughs> so mad. Um. Oh, but we heard... Oh. I know uh-huh. what it's time for. Yep. <laughs> I was like, it's time for Nerd Corner, but that's a yep. lie because I know it's time for me <laughs> to recap this movie. Oh, boy. Okay. There's friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many. Six. Because six friends. There are the number six of the friends. devil. What? Oh, yep. That makes sense. In my head, I was just like, too many to count. <laughs> there are some ladies that go on the ground. Check. You, you did it. Uh, yeah, there's friends, six friends, apparently. Uh, one of those friends has, like, a really horrible, uh, accident in the beginning, and she loses her family. Very sad. Um, but then they go on this, like, cave exploring fun extravaganza together and decide that that's gonna be great for her. I don't know why. They were just like, you know what she needs? Caves. So they go to the caves, and they're exploring together. But little do they know, Juno! The one who planned this whole trip has lied to them, and they are in an unexplored cave and not the one they said they were going to go to. So they get to the cave. Things go bad. Things go really bad. And the cave collapses and all this stuff. And then there's cave people. I mean, on top of it all, you know, it's already bad enough. And then there's cave people. And uh, that's really it. I mean, shit just goes bad from there. You know, yeah. the cave people attack. They, uh, 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 spoiler alert, one of them gets out. Um, and uh, yeah, I think she sees a ghost at the end. Hard to say. <laughs> uh, there's a second one. I haven't watched it. Don't watch it. Don't watch it? Is it no. bad? Well, okay. So based on the interview with the director that I read, he had basically no control over it. And so they were like, we want to make a sequel. And he was like, I don't think you should. And they were like, well, we're gonna. Aww. He was like, okay, well, then this, this, and this. And they said... Yeah, but we don't want to do that, so we're going to do this. And basically they said, like, Sarah has, like, amnesia, and she goes back into the system. And he was like, that's not – I mean, like, if you wanted to send her back into the system, you could say, like, there's a missing child. That would motivate her. But, like, they just didn't listen to him, and he didn't have rights to the movie because of how he got (laughs) introduced. So, like, one of the first questions in the interview is, like – uh, you know, I haven't watched the sequel until, like, recently. And he was like, that's fine. You don't have to. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I want to watch it just to see how bad it is. But... Oh, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. But that's so funny. Amnesia? Come on. Yeah. Like, all right. Ridiculous. The first one's great. Don't don't watch the sequel, everybody. Yeah, don't watch the sequel. <laughs> and they also um... retcon a bunch of wild-ass shit. Oh, boy. Now I got to watch it just to be angry. I can't yeah. wait now. Yeah, it's not going to be great. Going to watch it, going to hate it. Right. Going to watch it out of, like, pure anger. Yeah. And, like, the director says, like, the director of the first movie was like, yeah, I don't love it, but, like, it's a fine movie. Right. He's probably like, it's fine. If you don't think of it as a sequel, maybe it's good. Yeah. You're like, this is a standalone thing. Just skip the part where she has amnesia, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. So weird. All right. Give us us a real... uh, not synopsis. Give us a real, uh, what is it? It's called. Summary. <laughs> Summary. <laughs> Listen, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I mean, that helps because I'm, like, psyching myself out because every single time I have erred <laughs> in trying to read three sentences. So. This is it. This is my time. Don't fuck up. Okay. So, a year after severe emotional trauma, Sarah goes to North Carolina to spend some time exploring caves with her friends. After descending underground, the women find strange cave paintings and evidence of an earlier expedition. Then they learn they are not alone. Underground predators inhabit the crevasses, and they have a taste for human flesh. You nailed it! Thank you. That was truly one take, not a lie. Hot not the damn. magic of editing. It really I was one it. take. Cross my heart, guys. <laughs> one take. Oh, I'm so happy for me. Wow. Good for you, man. And that was a good synopsis. Or Thank not you. synopsis. Summary. I mean, I didn't write it. I'll never <laughs> know the word. <laughs> uh, who's to say what it is? Uh, but yeah, who's that was from Rotten Tomatoes. I did not write it. <laughs> But it was better than mine, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> mine has its own special thing. Um, One of the first things I did after watching this was like, what are the creatures called? I need something. They're called crawlers. Crawlers. Okay, because I, I was just calling them the people. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ooh, those people. The people in the caves. Like, <laughs> Yep. So spooky. They really creeps me out. Um, but this is it. Now it's time for Kate's Nerd Corner. <laughs> <laughs> So, I'm excited for this one. Oh, God. So the development of this nerd corner went through many phases. Before watching the movie, I had a drastically different idea for what I would cover. Like, I knew this was a British horror film set in the U.S., so I wanted to look at political events in the U.K. from 2000 to 2005. I was thinking that I could explore claustrophobia, representing a feeling of entrapment or helplessness. And I even reached out to your friend Amy, who is an absolute gem. And I asked her. her about political and social events in that time period. She gave me awesome info. And then I watched the movie and I realized the most relevant part of this movie is not when it was made or where. Mm. An interview with Neil Marshall said that he wanted to make the scariest movie possible. And this was actually in response to a reviewer for his film Dog Soldiers. Oh, and yeah. the reviewer was like, I mean, this is a good movie, but like, when will Brits make a scary movie again that's actually scary? And he was like, okay, I see you and I raise you. And... <laughs> So he was, like, motivated by that, and he originally pitched a zombie film on an oil rig. He took it to someone, and they were like, that's dope. We don't have the money for that. Try again, friend. So he took the train (laughs) ride home and thought up this movie. And then at some point, someone else came forward with the idea that they were all women. And he was like, cool, let's do it. Love that. So according to the writer and director, the goal was to create the scariest movie he could with motifs of grief and descent into madness. So that really put a damper on my plans. (laughs) But then I remembered talking about baptism and ironic baptism. And I was like, yes, the blood pit. So here we are. We love a blood pit. We love a blood pit. So I had previously talked about baptism in a very uh, basic way, but I do want to do a deeper dive into it. And I also want to do something that scares me personally, talking about irony, because I purposefully never use the word ironic because until right now, I was not confident that I would use it correctly. <laughs> so it's like one of those words that I just skip. And I'll be like, that's funny, instead of saying, that's ironic, because I want to make sure it's actually ironic. So That's so good. <laughs> this is me facing my fears. Oh, I'm proud of you. So we're going to start with baptism. So baptism in literature and film tends to represent a spiritual cleansing or like a transitional moment where someone is born anew. Typically, this means that they'll change their ways for the better or grow as a person. But redemption isn't really the name of the game in the descent. So we have to look at irony. 
But first, we have to go back down the tree a little bit. We'll start with literary devices. A literary device is basically a trope. It encompasses typical structure that authors use to convey messages simply and succinctly. So it can be a literary element or a literary technique. Narrative structure, characters, plots, that are all literary elements. Literary techniques are things like metaphors, similes, and irony. And at the most basic level, to be an effective use of irony, there needs to be an understanding of what would logically or normally occur and what actually occurs. Mm -hmm. And then there are three main forms of irony as literary devices. (laughs) So much irony. So much irony. So there's verbal, dramatic, and situational. Verbal irony is just when someone's intention is the opposite of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So if there's like a totally silent group of people and you're like, don't everyone talk at once, that's verbal irony. Ha ha. Yeah. Classic. Irony is basically when the audience knows something that the characters don't, and that changes the meaning of what the characters do or say. Mm -hmm. In Romeo and Juliet, the audience knows that Juliet is not actually dead, but Romeo doesn't know that. So he dies by suicide thinking that Juliet's dead. Bam! Dramatic irony. (laughs) And then we have situational irony, which is a subversion of expectations. And we've talked about subversion in tropes. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially just... You're set up to believe that something will occur, and then something wildly different happens. So, if we combine these two, we have an ironic baptism. Love it. (laughs) One would see in The Godfather, because I haven't seen it. (laughs) I haven't either. If one watched it, they would see (laughs) that Michael is becoming the actual godfather to a child at a baptism at the same time that he's taking his vows or whatever in the church, and he renounces Satan and all his works. At the same time, there is a massacre that he ordered occurring. He's wiping out, like, the heads of major Uh So the irony in this is the juxtaposition of renouncing evil at the same time that his orchestrated murder is occurring. That's evil. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So you have what's supposed to be a rebirth, this baptism, Mm -hmm. turning, or it's a turning point into becoming a better human, in theory, But instead, it marks a turning point for fully committing to a life of crime and violence. So that's one filmic example of a life or an Iran baptism. Beautiful. So then bring it back to our spelunkers. Yeah. We have the iconic scene in which Sarah falls into a pit of blood and other various gory uh, elements. (laughs) She rises from it, covered in blood and different. Insert John Mulaney, you look different. <laughs> you look different. You look different. Because I always have. I He's just always in my head. Always, forever. So previously in the movie, Sarah was timid and non-confrontational. After she rises from the blood, she grabs an animal bone and drives it to the eyeball of a crawler. Ugh. So instead of having the baptism be a turning point into a life of piety and peace, we have an ironic baptism. So as we know, after the scene, she turns into a crawler-killing badass. And also wounds Juno, leaving her for dead. So her rebirth was arguably a devolution, from humanity to monstrousness. We don't see her being reborn and freed from grief. Instead, it's that last drop into it that completes a descent into madness. It reminded me of, you've given like a very beautiful description of it, and I'm about to give you what it reminded me of, and it's going to be such a funny difference. Um, It reminded me of that meme where it's Princess Daisy and she goes, aren't you tired of being nice? And then she gets even closer and she goes, don't you just want to go ape shit? 
Yep, I actually <laughs> thought of the same meme. I was like, I need That's to mention like... the ape shit meme. <laughs> it was when, as soon as she came out of the blood and she was like, ah, I was like, don't you just want to go ape shit? <laughs> and she said, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Who doesn't? Right? That's, uh that was one of my favorite scenes. Obviously, yeah. I mean, it's like the most wild one, kind of, but oh, oh yeah, so good. and it's also like the cover of the movie. So there are a lot of different movie right. posters, but one of the covers is her rising from the pit with like her uh. face to the sky, screaming, as one does when they fall in blood. And if you want to hear, <laughs> I just heard what you said and was like, ha yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk more about irony. So it's like a staple in horror films. Mm -hmm. Subversion of expectations, plot twists. It keeps us on our toes, making the jump scares scarier. Situational irony surprises us, while dramatic irony creates tension. And there are three stages of dramatic irony. I love when things are subdivided into categories, and then those categories are subdivided into categories. It just makes me, like, God, it makes me joyous. You love categories. I fucking love categories. (laughs) And you know what? I love that about you. I, I'm glad you do. <laughs> it makes us all very easy. <laughs> so, three stages of dramatic irony, presentation, suspension, and resolution. So according to the very helpful article at Studio Binder by Brent Dunham, this is direct quote, preparation happens as soon as the audience is given privileged information. Suspension is how long it takes for the character to know the truth that we've known all along, and resolution is what happens when the ultimate truth is finally revealed. And the consequences are presented. So, dramatic irony in the descent. The audience knows that Juno accidentally wounded Beth, but Sarah thinks it was intentional. At the end of the day, that difference may not have mattered to Sarah, even if she knew it. Regardless of intention, Juno left Beth to die. And you have the two traumatic truths revealed to Sarah at the same time. Juno mournly wounded Beth, and Juno was having an affair with her late husband. So, TBH may not have mattered much to Sarah. But it is dramatic irony, especially when at the same time that Sarah's murderous rage with Juno grows, Juno is refusing to leave without Sarah. So the presentation is arguably when Beth tells Sarah, don't trust Juno, she did this to me. Because we know what was left unspoken, but Sarah fills in the gaps differently. And the suspension is all the time between Sarah and Juno being in the same place again, where Sarah is slashing and bashing her way through and Juno is determined to make sure that Sarah makes it out. And then Sarah's the final good. stage is the resolution, when Sarah reveals the necklace and catches Juno in a lie about Beth. There's never a discussion that clarifies whether Beth's wounding was intentional, but of course that doesn't really matter to Sarah a lot at the time. So the no. consequences are presented. Sarah stabs Juno in the leg with her ice pick Ugh. and leaves her to fight off crawlers on her own. Oh, which is like worse than killing her. Mm-hmm. Like she was yep. just like, uh-uh. <laughs> and I've got a plan. Be- that's going to fit into a trope later, too. Oh, boy. Uh, and there's so much more to say about irony, but I think that is sufficient for one nerd corner. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. You faced your fears and you did such a good job. I talked about irony. No one corrects me. But actually, if I'm wrong about anything, correct me, please. If she's I'm wrong gonna... about anything, don't say anything. <laughs> don't say anything. Let don't me feel dare. proud of knowing irony after you 27 years. But, uh, I think you nailed it. I do want to give a shout out to my high school English teacher. I'm not going to say her name because she's uh, a fairly private person and that's valid. Uh, But she actually kind of changed my life in terms of like my understanding of my own intelligence or like Mm -hmm. my own insight. And I thought I was like too dumb to take AP English. 
And then she was like, no, no, no. And I still have uh-huh. all of my AP English notes, like literally three four inch binders full of AP English stuff because I cannot get rid of it because I love that class so much and it changed the way I see things. So thanks. Hell yeah. We love good English teachers. We, we love all good teachers. Yes. Amazing. We love teachers. Teachers are yeah. great. I was like, let's just, we love teachers. Let's yeah. generalize it. They're all great. Yes. So yeah, um, that's Nerd Corner. <laughs> that was a quick one. That was a quick Nerd Corner, but I liked that one a lot. It was only two pages. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Instead of three. <laughs> Instead of, like, seven, you take so many notes. So all of my notes for this episode are eight pages long, but some of that is, I know, a lot of that, probably four pages, is tropes, two Mm -hmm. pages is nerd corner, and then the rest is miscellany notes, so. That's so funny. I love it. Every time you tell me how many pages you took, I'm always surprised, even though I, like, I know. Like, I know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh my god, that means it's time for horror. It's time for <gasps> horror. So exciting. Um, I posted about it on Twitter, but it was so funny going from a movie, like, or all the movies that we've done, that are relatively just, like, not gory at all, to nope. just <laughs> the bloodiest Blood movie. <laughs> the eyeball gore, the fingernail Dude, gore, like, the, wild. They, this movie loved their eyeball gore. They, they did. really just... Dug their little fingies in there, huh? Right into the Ugh. sockets. Oh, God. Eyeballs. That grosses me out so Yeah, much. I really don't like eyeball stuff. It bothers me less than, like, fingernail stuff, which they don't really do. But, like... They did do one in this movie. They did movie. do one. And mm-hmm. I was like, Ugh. Yeah. But... It's called Fingor. Oh, God. I hate that <laughs> word even. Ew. Yeah. I wish gross. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm here to give you facts that scare you about the world. Oh, thank you so much. I mm-hmm. hate it. Thanks, I hate it. Um, but le- okay, so like, this movie's scary on its own, yeah. even if it didn't have cave people, just because it's a claustrophobic nightmare. Mm-hmm. Ugh, from the very, ugh, like from the very beginning of the cave exploration, I was just like, uh-uh, I don't like this at all. Oh god. And that's one of the funny things is that it has a genre shift from like dread built by like just the built environment into a right. slasher where yes. it's just bloodfest. But that starts about halfway through, so you're about yeah. halfway through the movie before the creatures present themselves and the quote unquote real horror begins. And so right. at first you're like, okay, well they're gonna get stuck, they're gonna get lost. That's the horror. And it's like, no, 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 they're gonna eat your insides. Which is so funny because like my favorite quote in the whole movie, I think, really just sums up the movie when they're in the the cave in and Sarah's like having a panic attack and Beth is like. The worst thing yep. has already happened to you. What 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 else could happen? It's okay. Like you're gonna be mm-hmm. okay, and that helps Sarah like get over it, and she is able to like climb out of this horrible cave. But then everything gets worse. Yeah. So it's and like I, oh, no. As soon as she said that, I was like, well, I already know what trope is gonna come right? up, and it's like tempting fate, rock bottom. It's like, this is the moment where you say, well, at least I can't get worse. Or like, the worst right. thing that could happen to you has happened. There's nothing left to be afraid of. And I love Beth. All of my love goes to love Beth. love Beth. I mean, I also send love to Becca and Sam because I love them desperately. But yeah. it's just that moment was like, oh, you're really asking for it then, aren't you? And not asking for right. it because they don't deserve anything that happens to them. None of them. No. But like, this is tempting fate. 
Yeah. Oh, as soon as she said it, because I've seen the movie, so as soon as she said it, I was just like, oh, Beth, you don't even know. Oh, and then it sweet also... Sweet child. A sweet summer child. She doesn't even know. And it was also just interesting, just because, like, I feel like... I feel like that quote meant a lot to Sarah, too, because, like, I feel like through the whole movie... She gets, you know, her bloody, gross baptism. And I feel like in her mind, it's still like, you know what? You're right. The worst thing has happened. Like, I got nothing to lose. Because she loses her family. That's what I took from it as well. Because she loses her family. So she's in this gross, bloody baptism. And I feel like it's her being like, Beth was right. The worst things happen. I got nothing to lose. What's the point? Like, I might as well just become my most primal, feral self. Yep. And uh, she fucking does. And it's dope as hell, to be honest. Yep. Like, <laughs> I was like, hell yes. <laughs> yep. That oh, feral and, energy. Oh, that feral energy. And when she screams, it's amazing because they're all looking for Sarah. And they're all like, oh, no, we have to find Sarah. I hope she's okay. And then she screams so loud that they think it's a crawler. And they're like, oh, Sarah's probably dead. And I'm like, yo, that is Sarah. She's that wild Sarah. now. <laughs> And that gets into a few tropes that I have, but also like the ambiguity that was intentionally created. Mm -hmm. And so there was a scene that was taken out because they thought that it made it too clear that everything was fake and they wanted it to be not everything was fake, but everything was in Sarah's imagination that Sarah's actually the monster all along type thing. Right. But they took it out because they were like, no, this makes it too obvious. This really Mm -hmm. sets it on one side of like the point. And so it was like, I think it was supposed to be set in the hospital or before they went underground at some point where Sarah would see a crawler outside of the cave before all of the events in the cave happened. And so that would be like one of those moments where it's like she imagined the crawlers. She is what's killing her friends. She is the monster. Okay, okay, okay. I know that that was like supposed to be ambiguous and like, yeah, if you pick up on that, guess you didn't. What? (laughs) Wait, (laughs) this whole time I was like, yeah, there were crawlers and like they all, you know, had to get out and defend themselves. What Sarah was just, wait. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the point where it's like you can read it either way and either reading is totally valid. That it's just so funny that how many times I've seen this and you just absolutely blew my mind. I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to hear my deepest shame about English? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So have you ever read Slaughterhouse-Five? Uh-uh. Okay, so it's Kurt Vonnegut, and Mm -hmm. it's basically about PTSD and, like, war experiences. And the main character is, like, recalling the events of the war, like, these traumatic things, and also talking about how he has been abducted by the Trophomadorians and how he goes to their planet and, like, how, like their eyes are like in their hands or something and so then when they close their hands it means they don't approve of something because they don't want to see it and so like he has these very vivid descriptions of these aliens and i was talking to one of my friends in this class and i was talking very seriously about the trophomadorians and she was like (laughs) but i mean it's his ptsd and i was like wait you don't think they're real (laughs) and i was like the entire thing was supposed to be about his ptsd and i was like no aliens are real this is a science fiction book aliens are real (laughs) Okay, good. So, like, I would have done yep. the same thing, clearly. Like, now that, that I'm looking indicated. back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, she was having all those flashbacks to, like, her child's birthday. Oh, yeah, she was just kind of, like, losing it a little bit. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then at the end, when she sees Juno, it's, like, the guilt. And, like, mm-hmm. now it's just more, oh, yeah, wild. 
So there's, uh, I want to get into the dual endings in a mm-hmm. second because there's yeah, which a lot I don't know there. about. I haven't seen them, so oh boy, okay, I'm excited to hear about this. I didn't look them up because I was like, Kate's gonna tell me about them. Oh my god, I'm so <laughs> excited to talk about it. Even though I haven't seen the original UK ending, mm-hmm. I read everything about it, so I know it. Uh, <laughs> I'm a genius. But just setting up Sarah as an unreliable narrator, like when she's in the cabin before mm-hmm. they go underground, you see pills in front of her. And that's, like, a super easy way to say this is unreliable because, like, mental illness is so stigmatized. And so, like, that's one way that they set her up to be unreliable. And then I think someone said that, like, you don't see her take the pills with her. And so, like, she arguably didn't take them prior to going in. And they might have been psychotropic. But, like, to Mm -hmm. me, that's, like, I don't know if it's called splitting hairs. But to me, that's not as important. But she definitely has, like, in the hospital... When she wakes up for the first time, she is hallucinating the abandonedness of the hospital. And then she oh, runs into Beth yeah. and the reality comes crashing down. And so I think that's loaded with symbolism, but also like speaks to her emotional state because she just yeah. lost everything. You're and totally right. Yeah. Then like she hears child laughter, which is supposed to be her daughter. Ugh. Before shit starts hitting the fan, you think that she may be an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. But Dang. then... That leads into the two endings. Right. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. So, uh, Neil Marshall was the... I'm pretty sure it's Marshall. Uh, I know his first name is Neil. (laughs) I know for sure it's Neil. (laughs) Cool. So, he was the writer and director. And the original ending, when it premiered in the UK, uh, picks up after the final scene in the US version. So it's not like this diverging ending like you have with Clue, where there were like right. three different theatrical endings on purpose. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. the US version, the one that I saw, right. uh, she escapes the cave. Like she is on her way out. She falls through like a hole. She ends mm-hmm. up on a pile of bones. And then she looks up and she sees light. And she climbs up the pile of bones, this wild, like beautiful shot. And oh, then she. So good bursts into greenery and she runs like mad to the car the keys happen to be in the car above the like right uh, yeah the little visor, the visor. I, we're just like motioning for yeah. it <laughs> i wish you could hear us miming because we mimed yep. visor for like a full minute there we sure did uh and then she drives off and once she feels sufficiently far she breaks down in her car she pulls off the road she starts crying and then this semi drives past and like shakes the car And she opens the window, vomits out the window, and then turns around and Juno is sitting in the passenger seat with bloody eyes. And then Sarah screams, and that's the ending in the U.S. But in the U.K. version, Mm -hmm. you see her back in the cave. (gasps) And she wakes up, and you realize that she had passed out when she fell onto the pile of bones. (gasps) I have seen this ending, because I had it on DVD. Yep. Oh my god, I have seen this. Yeah, so essentially in the UK ending, you realize that she hallucinated escaping and she hallucinates that her daughter is there with her blowing out candles on a birthday cake. And then you realize that it's just her torch and crawlers are closing on her. Yes. Oh, I have seen that. It's a good ending, Mm -hmm. y'all. Dang, I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah. And it was changed (sighs) in US theaters like after the release of the UK Mm -hmm. one because they like pilot tested or audience tested or whatever and they said that like 
the Americans liked the more quote-unquote hopeful ending, but Neil's like, it's not actually more hopeful. Because, like, yeah, she's, I mean, she's seeing a ghost. Well, a vision. Yeah. In the original ending, she's back with her daughter, and that's all she wanted the whole time. But in the U.S. version, she has to live with all of the trauma that she went through. And he just questions, like, is it better for her to survive? Or is it better for her to die thinking she's reunited with her daughter? Right. I feel like the other one's a little more hopeful, but okay. (laughs) That's such a good ending. Um, This movie also, if you watch it on DVD, if you have it on DVD, has one of the my favorite things that any horror movie has ever had, which I've told you about, is outtakes. (laughs) I love outtakes. Horror movies with outtakes will always be funny because it's just such a funny thing. And... The only one that I can really picture right now or remember is the moment when she's in the car and the semi has just, like, passed and she's about to throw up. She's got her head on the steering wheel and she, like, lifts it up to, like, scream. And the outtakes, she's got her head on the steering wheel and she's, like, about to lift it up to scream. And she doesn't tell anyone that she's done this. And she pulls her head up and she's got those glasses on that make your eyes into springs. (laughs) And she starts, like frantically looking around and they're just like wobbling in front of her. Oh my god, I love it. And you could just hear the whole crew losing it because they were like, we had no idea she was going to wear these. That's incredible. (laughs) I think about that. Every time I watch a horror movie, I'm like, wish this had outtakes. Like The Descent. (laughs) Outtakes for horror films or like very serious shows are my favorite. Because like I grew up watching Friends and like watching the bloopers and stuff, but that's for a comedy show. So like... It's not as funny when they lose their shit when they're already laughing, but like in a horror movie where you have that just like genre shift. Oh my God, I love it. It's so funny. Like, I don't know. I, I've never seen another horror movie without takes, but if there are some, hit me up, show me them because I love them. That's all I want. Uh, um, And then the other thing I want to talk about other than the outtakes was, and I know you mentioned this. The colors of this movie. <gasps> I have been so excited to hear you talk about this. Oh, they it's it's so amazing. I love it. It starts out with like very natural colors when they're like, you know, rafting. It's just like, you know, your basic like movie colors, whatever, very natural lighting. Um and then once they get to like the cabin and they're in the woods, it becomes very, very saturated and very green. Which I love because it's very much like hopeful and nature and everything's alive. And then the minute they get to the caves, they're lit by these like neon artificial lights, like reds and greens and nothing looks natural anymore. Even though they're in a cave that you, you would think like, oh, yes, nature, like, but nothing looks real. It all looks so fake. And I think that really leads into what you said about how, like, is any of this real? Is anything that she's doing real? Like... I think the lighting is really cool because it's all so synthetic and weird. The flare lighting is so drastically red that it makes the blood look even more red. And then it and it kind of leads into this like, well, is she actually in the blood or is this like the lighting from the flare? Like what what's going on here? And oh, I love it. And then you see her get out and they've been lit by these like gross kind of not gross but like really intense neon green glow sticks and then they get out into like the actual green landscape and it's just such an interesting difference i love it i love it so much (laughs) 
incredible. Yeah. The entire time I was like, okay, so this is going back between like red and green. And it's like, there's got to be symbolism here. But also just like, I love what you said about the artificialness and how it's like kind of this alternate reality where it's yeah. like everything 100%. they expected is subverted. Everything yeah. they thought they understand is wrong. Right. So the lighting is just so unnatural because it's just like nothing you thought it would be. Yep. Um, and then uh, the light, obviously, you get that like really intense red behind them when obviously like the one of the best shots in the movie is when she's climbing up the pile of bones. And it's that awesome, like everything's red around her and it's nasty and artificial and gross. But then you see this beacon of like natural light come through that we haven't seen since the very beginning it's so nice and so yeah. cool and it's just like oh she's climbing to just get back to that natural light that we had oh so good the lighting in this movie is so so good and that was something that reminds me of an earlier scene where holly back when she was alive really uh, oh, she holly is like scoping out the systems first like she's sent in to right. say like okay this is the direction that we can go mm -hmm. and she's headstrong and she's like i see light i see an opening and june is like mm -hmm. no you don't but right. holly's like no 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 and she runs and that's when she falls in a pit and breaks her leg horrifically with the bone sticking out right and juno later explains like it's phosphorus it makes it look like daylight but it was this moment right. of hope and it was that hope shot and then it, you know, led Ugh. to gore and grossness and, like, this letdown. But hope is leveraged so masterfully in horror movies sometimes. Yeah. And also it was, like, it was a pretty small amount of light. And I think yeah. that made it extra interesting is because, like, I even almost missed it. Like, I was like, what is she running towards? What is she? And then I saw this tiny little, and I was like, oh, yeah, daylight. And then immediately I'm like, why are they all freaking out? She sees daylight. What's up? Like, <laughs> they got me. Um yeah, it was so good. They just did a really great job with that. And just, like, it's interesting when a movie that's so gory and, like, classic, set, like, slasher has just really beautiful cinematography as well. Oh, yeah. It's like, hell yeah. Like, <laughs> you don't always get those two mixed together. And it's it's kind of nice. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the scene where Sam is dangling. Like, okay, so Becca originally is the one that shows, like, the expert of crossing the top of the cave and, like, yeah, putting yeah. the cans in and, like, <clears throat> the carabiners. Carabiners? Carabiners? I don't know climb. Carabiners, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I don't leave my apartment. <laughs> Climbing, uh, no. And so then you see Sam who's doing it without her older sister, and she's trying to set up a way of cross. She doesn't have enough rope. She only has one right. carabiner. Like, there's no way she's going to make it. And then a crawler attacks her, rips her Ugh. throat out, and she still stabs it. But in that scene, the camera keeps flipping upside down, so you mm -hmm. don't remember which way is up. And it was just, like, wild filming. Yeah, I wrote that in my, my notes, that one of my favorite parts about the camera work in this movie is that they keep you disoriented throughout the whole thing. Um, they go from like wide shots to really, really intense close-ups pretty quick in each shot. Like it's just so, and so you're like, how close is anybody right now? Like, where is everyone standing? And like, part of that could just be because it was a set, like it wasn't a cave. So like, you do have to do some like artful shots to like, make sure that it's clear that this is not a set, but it's still like, they did such a good job of just keeping everyone lost you know, like it was just 
so interesting. When you see the shot of the two girls who are hiding from the crawlers, Mm. they're covering their mouths, trying to stay quiet. It's just so close to them that uh, you lose a sense of where the crawlers are and how close they are until they're right on them. And so they just they keep you in the dark about some things with their camera work, just like they're keeping them in the dark, obviously, because like it's genuinely dark. (laughs) So they oh. They just do a good job of, like, hiding stuff and yet still showing you more than they're showing them in a way. Because it's like, we're getting a little more light than they're getting. But with their camera work, I'm also still just as confused a little bit. It's nice. Yeah, and that gets back to the trope of nothing is scarier, where a lot of the shots (gasps) are mostly black. Where, like, you have to fill in what's happening around the edges. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, that also does a really good job with the lighting as well. Going back to that is that like, because the lighting is so unnatural and, um, kind of weird, you get like really high contrast looks at like the crawlers and stuff to the point where like, you kind of don't know what they look like fully. Like you, you do, I mean, you see them, but it's not like other movies where you see the monster and then you're let down for the rest of the movie. They showed them in so many different lightings and this and that. So you never get a full sense of like what they truly look like in just, like, natural light. So it, it never felt like a letdown, really. They never showed them, I think, like, fully, I feel like. Yeah. In a way. I love that. Uh, it reminded me of one of the tropes that was mm-hmm. about, like, the way that the crawlers are revealed with the lighting. Yeah. So it's called the match light danger revelation. So like typically in a film when it's used, it's like someone lights a match mm-hmm. and you suddenly see the horror. And it's like it was hiding in the dark. But now that we have the match lit, like we can see it. Right. But in this film, it's subverted because Juno pulls out her lighter and she's using it to see like where the airflow is in the cave or whatever. And also right. for a little bit of light. But it's not close enough at that point for them to see anything with the lighter. And it's only yeah. when they turn the night vision on the camcorder that you see the crawler right fucking behind them. Right. And also what's super interesting is you see it pretty clearly before you see it there, which is mm-hmm. so cool, I feel like. Because you get this like weird look at it like almost in a serene way where it's like drinking water and Sarah's mm-hmm. seeing it and you're you're seeing you're seeing it do something that's not all that scary. So you're not like scared of it yet you're kind of just like confused and a little weirded out you know and it runs away and you're like okay that's weird and then they kind of don't bring it up for a bit like they talk about it but they don't show you it again until yeah it's right there they don't oh it's so spooky (laughs) that brings up a thing for me though because it's like why didn't it attack her she was alone so is this, like, further proof of that she created it in her mind? And, like, to me, when I watched the movie, I read it as, the crawlers are real, they're killing everyone, I and Sarah that. slowly becomes more and more like them. But I love that they had enough little clues where it could be read differently. Right. Because it also, I mean, like you said, there's so many little clues to other things, because you do see, as well, a crawler that's, like, a mom. So you know that there's kids, you know that there's, like, little ones. So is this just a kid? Did she just, did Sarah just see like a young one and it yep. didn't attack because it doesn't know? Yep. Or did Sarah not see anything and it didn't attack her because it's her own mind? There's just so many tiny little things that, ugh, were, were just great. And also like the fact that there is a mom like crawler 
compares it more to Sarah because, like, you feel the grief of, like, that crawler losing its mate or losing its child. And then same with Sarah. I feel like you have a moment of understanding briefly where she kills it. And she's like, I had to do it. But, like, I, I, I don't love that. Like, yeah. It's that wild moment, basically exactly what you said, where, like, she is, Sarah is the mother that has lost her child, and then she is faced with a crawler that is a mother that has lost Mm -hmm. her child, and then Sarah has her ironic baptism, and she fucking stabs it in the eye. And so you see this moment of humanity for the monster, and then a lessening of humanity in Sarah. Yeah. And then later in a scene, she bites the flesh off of one of the crawlers and so it's like this juxtaposition of like this weird humanity that we did not anticipate from a crawler and then just decreasing levels of humanity that descent into madness for sarah you you just see it completely switch because this whole time you're looking at sarah like she is a timid like you know just lost woman and then you you see it completely switch like you said like then you see this crawler and you you genuinely feel bad and you're like oh like it has feelings too and then sarah's just like i don't care <laughs> and sarah just becomes primal and wild and that's also hinted at sort of in the beginning when they see the cave painting because you see like you know old old cave paintings from the time before like civilization and it's like oh that's interesting like wow didn't know the cave is really that old and then you see sarah going back to like how you would probably act before you had like a civilization yeah uh, it was so interesting i had forgotten about that part where she sees the the cave painting completely because then it's like how old are these things are they the, the they're not the people who had an expedition they clearly probably died are they genuinely like that old i don't know it, it was wild one of the things in the interview uh, that the director said, the interviewer asked, like, what's something you think most people missed? And he was like, well, in my mind, the crawlers are cave people that never left the cave, where yeah. part of humanity left the caves and created societies, whatever. But then part of them stayed in the dark and their evolution was different because they stayed in the right. dark and they became carnivorous. And so, like, in his mind, they're cave people that stayed cave dwelling so they are like they share that like original link of humanity but then just diverged so they've like they're they've been around the same amount of time that like civilization has but they They just evolved different like and but also like that did confuse me slightly because i was like they they clearly go to the surface in my notes i wrote uh, when they, you see the moose, I think, I think it's a moose, mm-hmm. um, is dead. In my mind, I saw that as just uh, just as like a, a premonition of what was to come sort of thing. Like I was like, oh, wow, look like a dead moose. Like they're just saying like, oh, that's nature. That's what happens now. It's about to happen to them kind of thing. Yep. But then when they're in the caves, they say like, oh, we saw that moose. Clearly they go to the surface to hunt. And I was like, what? In my notes, I thought they didn't. I wrote, like, clearly they don't go to the surface. This is a cool look at, like, what's to come. Mm-hmm. But they do say they go to the surface, so... Yeah. I, I was surprised by that, because I was like, can they? Can they? Like, doesn't seem like they are evolved to really be on the surface, but then again, we're not really evolved to be in caves, and here we are, so... And here we are. 
No, I had the same kind of confusion with that moment because I had the same thought where it's like, okay, well, the dead moose is an omen and mm-hmm. it's foreshadowing of like their deaths. Right. And like uh, civilization versus nature, like that age old battle. And then I think it's Sam who's like a doctor and she's not actually a doctor yet. She's like about to yeah. present her thesis or whatever. Like she's close to being a doctor. Um, and that's the Chekhov skill <laughs> where it like is presented and then becomes useful. Love that. But uh, they're like, okay, tell us what you can about this creature by looking at it. And she's like, okay, well, yeah. they cannot see very well, if mm-hmm. at all, because of the darkness down here. So they like probably echolocate or like use sound in some way to find people. And so I'm like, okay, right. so like above ground with not a lot of things for sound to bounce off of. Would not be ideal hunting grounds, but also right. how many people descend into caves. And so to me, right. I would have to mm-hmm. say, like, last ditch, they go to the surface to, like, grab things. But I think they'd be fairly helpless above ground. That's what I thought. I was like, I don't think they could hunt up there. So unless they're just, like, getting lucky and things are dying near the entrance, I don't think they would really be able. And obviously, it's an unexplored cave. So even if people were going down there like consistently not that consistent so the only thing i could think was that they've like evolved past the need to eat consistently Mm, or they're just cannibals so like they just eat their own kind that's the only thing i could think because i was like i don't think they they can really go to the surface but they do mention it so but this all goes back to like is it in sarah's head yeah if it is i mean obviously she's going to contradict herself she doesn't know like so and there's a fair number of animal skeletons because, like, one of the yeah. clues is the pitten that Becca connects to where she mm-hmm. sees it and she's like, well, I have to use this. It's where I would have stuck a cam. Right. And she uses it. And then when Juno is crashing, she was like, we need all the rope we can get. And so she crosses and the pitten comes out and she doesn't fall to her death, but she is injured. And then Becca's hands are wrecked. Or no, it's Sam's right. hands that are Sam. absolutely just gored. Ugh. And oh, nasty. And so um, so they look at the pit and they're like, "This has been out of vogue for like a hundred years or something." Out of vogue. And yeah, that's exactly what they said. They're very fashion conscious. <laughs> so, but no, like they say, like clearly, no one has been down here right. in a long time. And so it's like, okay, so where are they getting all the human skeletons? But the human skeletons are quite clean. And so, like, if it was following natural decay, it would take a while. But, like, if right. they're really clean in the bones. Like, I think I texted you once while I was watching this. I was like, that skull's in pretty good shape. I would expect gnaw yeah. marks. <laughs> You're like, that's a really nice skull. Like. Yeah. Very clean. Which, <laughs> no teeth marks I mean, at all. <laughs> Which just goes back to, like, possibly it is just yeah. in Sarah's head. And the only bones that we're actually seeing are animals that, like, fell in. You yeah. know, because that's possible. Like, the cave entrance is something that, like, you could go into and fall. Mm-hmm. And that's how the bones, like, could pile up, I guess. But, yeah, it really all just goes back to, like, did Sarah just imagine it? And that's why everything's just a little off. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's kind of cool. I like it. I like that it's hard to say. I really do love movies where at the end you find yourself like vacillating between the two where it's like, I don't know, I think it was all real. The crawlers were real. Right. And then you're like, 
I don't know. And you disagree with yourself. I love it and I hate it in equal measure. Well, like before you said anything, I thought the whole thing was like real. But then the more I'm going back and looking at my own notes, I was like, oh, yeah, I was confused by that part. <gasps> Maybe it's not real. Oh, I feel so tricked. <laughs> I can't trust my own brain. Um, well, speaking of not trusting my own brain, that has nothing to do with this. And I just wanted to segue. Tropes. Tropes. <laughs> okay. I'm just really excited about them. <laughs> this list was long. So Ooh. I did something different and I grouped some of them uh, nice. because some of them are fairly self-explanatory. Some of them we've covered before. And then I just straight up didn't cover like I don't know, half of them because this is right, a yeah. long ass list. Uh, because like his goal was to recreate the scariest movie he could. And so obviously he pulled a ton of really common horror tropes. Right. You know. So to start off, we have the abandoned hospital awakening. But this is a subverted trope. So if you're thinking of, like, The Walking Dead, and this mm -hmm. is not a spoiler because this is, like, the very first episode, but uh, the main character, whose name, is it Rick? Yeah. Uh, all I can remember is Carl. And he's like, Carl! Carl. <laughs> <laughs> so Rick wakes up in a hospital, and it's abandoned, or, mm -hmm. like, it's a particular zombie. like, something happens, and, like, he has to try and figure out, he, like, rides through town on a horse or some shit, and he, like, yep. has to figure out what has happened because he woke up alone in a hospital. And so this <clears> is <throat> subverted because she thinks she's abandoned in the hospital, and then she, like, rips all the cords out of her arms. It's like, why do people do, like, I haven't right. woken up in a hospital like that, so I cannot speak to the state I'm of like, mind in which someone would rip IVs out of their arms. I don't know. But if, that's like if, a common thing that people do in movies. If someone put something in my arm, listen, I'd be like, you know better than me. <laughs> I don't know why it's there, but I'm sure it's a good reason. Uh, don't rip things out. When I was a kid, I had to go under for a surgery, and mm -hmm. uh, they told me that they were going to put a magic straw on top of my arm. And I was like, okay, well, you wouldn't lie to me. And then they had, like, a straw around an IV, and the IV went into my arm, as IVs do. And I was like, you told me it was magic. <laughs> and I was so angry. Wow. What a weird trick. Like, yeah. to just be like, well, wrap a straw around this. She'll never know. I'm like, and, like inside of her arm. I think she will. Yeah. And as I am, and as I was definitely as a child, I was a little shit, where it's like, <laughs> I had blood drawn and they told me it wouldn't hurt. And then it did hurt. And so I screamed very loudly the whole time to let them know that they lied to me. And they very begrudgingly <laughs> gave me like one of those toys at the end because they said they would. But I was like, if you had just told me it will hurt, but it won't hurt that bad, I probably wouldn't have been as angry. Probably wouldn't have screamed. I might have still because I was, again, you were... a little shit. But <laughs> You were just a petty little kid who was yes. just like, I wasn't going to scream, but you fucking mm -hmm. lied. <laughs> You made me scream. <laughs> anyway. Incredible. <laughs> leaving my childhood. Oh, my God. So this abandoned hospital awakening is subverted because it turns out to be her grief hallucination. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, this serves to show the loss she's experiencing, this feeling of being alone or cursed because she has just lost her tethers to the world and, like, the most important people <clears throat> to her. Right. And then there's the accidental murder paired with don't sneak up on me like that obviously when juno stabs death oh hated juno. that and then for this one i'm going to pull a direct quote from tvtropes.com mm -hmm. because i really love the way it was phrased <clears throat> so this is the action girl trope and we did talk about it in our previous it. movie 
There we are. Yes. It. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. I was like, what movies have we done? <laughs> <laughs> so we did have the action girl, Bev. And basically, it's like a tough lady who kicks major ass. But I love the way that TV Tropes tracks it. And so the direct quote is, The broad action girl concept can take many forms. Faux action girl is a case of presenting a character as this, only for them to not live up to the standards of this trope. Dark action girl is the villainous variety. And the affirmative action girl is a cast addition intended to balance out gender ratios that typically also falls from this trope. Less actiony versions include You Go Girl and Plucky Girl. This is a somewhat <laughs> cyclic trope, with action girls often having surges in popularity in the 40s, 70s, 90s, and 2010s. Mm-hmm. Probably not coincidentally, since those are times when the women's movement increased in prominence. Dang. Yeah. This movie kind of had all of them, too, if you think about it. It had like every version of that, because you have Holly, who's just mm-hmm. like, you know immediately the action girl like go for it and then you've got juno and sarah dang that's interesting and then we have the almost dead guy so and this one i read it and i almost like totally skipped past it but then i actually read the page and it's more than just wow this person's on death's door but still kicking usually the important part is that the almost dead person also happens to survive long enough to pass on vital information to the protagonist and then conveniently expires. Yeah. Or is someone about to reveal a vital truth and then kicks it before they can say, like, my murderer's name is dies. (laughs) So in the descent, the almost dead gal is Beth when she's stabbed by Juno in the throat. And then she's left in the crawler pit but lives long enough to tell Sarah some painful truths. Dang. Yeah. And poor then, Beth. Fucking poor Beth. She didn't. I okay, really none of them Beth. deserved it. Truly, no. none of them deserved anything that happened to them, obviously. I just. But, like, Beth really got done dirty. I know. I just really loved Beth. She was she was my favorite, aside from uh, Becca. Fucking yeah. love Becca. I was a pretty big fan of Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> she was a little wild. <laughs> I didn't dislike her, but, like, I had to split my love and adoration between three people. Them's the rules. And right. it was Beth, Sam, and Becca. Right. Yeah. Understandable. Sorry about it, all the other ones. Uh, <laughs> okay. So then we're going to get into one of my deep primal fears, which is ankle drags. Ooh. So, yeah. So in this one, it's uh, the older sister, Becca, is pulled away by a crawler by her ankle. It's like when someone's running or when someone's like in the water, something grabs their ankle, pulls them down, pulls them away. I have a very deep fear of open back staircases. I <laughs> I get very scared that something is going to reach out from beneath the stairs, grab my ankle, and somehow I'll fit through the gap between the stairs when they pull me under and kill me. <laughs> You've got two fears, open yep. back staircases and the word ironic. <laughs> yep, two fears. <laughs> Man, can you imagine an ironic open back staircase? Why would you do this to me? I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring it up, but I'm just saying. Careful. I'm picturing merch. <laughs> it's like an ironic staircase. <laughs> Who knows what that means? <laughs> I don't know. Someone let us know. <laughs> Someone let us know what an ironic staircase looks I'm, like. <laughs> I'm very curious. We just need an to escalator? Know. No. Maybe? No. No. I don't like escalators either. <laughs> I for got different stuck reasons. In a... Did you get stuck in one? I got stuck in one. No, I get dizzy on them and I'm afraid oh. I'll get stuck in them. I had a little dress on that had like cats <gasps> on it. It was my favorite dress and it got sucked into it. And uh, luckily someone was there and just like ripped the, the dress before it could like pull it up too much. 
And you know what the, the worst part about it? I had to walk around the mall with half a dress. <laughs> so, you know, that's the real fear. That's the real, yep. Oh my God, that's horrific in yeah, so many ways. <laughs> right? They don't scare me at all, though, which is funny. Like, I'm not scared of them. I just, I got stuck in it and I was like, oh, well, such is life. Moving on. <laughs> I don't think we have time to get into my distaste for escalators. <laughs> uh, that'll be a bonus episode. I've been vulnerable enough today. I'm not going to talk you about escalators You already covered now. irony. It's fine. <laughs> get so, there later. Leaving escalators behind, as we should, we have the bat scare. So, oh, yeah. I had talked about the cat scare in It Follows, but this is more than the cat scare. It's often used, and this is a direct quote from TV Tropes. It's mm-hmm. often used to emphasize the forsaken and or unexplored nature of the site itself. While a lone cat won't hesitate to wander around near people, mm-hmm. a whole colony of bats is unlikely to settle for long in a place where humans regularly venture. So it's sometimes combined with hand in the hole for added tension. Right. Hand in the hole. Uh, oh. And then there are also versions, which is not the case in this one, but versions in which the animals turn out to be fleeing from something much more dangerous. Right. Yeah. I loved the bat scare in this because of how long it was. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like, here's so a bat. Long. Ah, she just screamed for like a full yeah. minute and was just like, ah! <laughs> and I was, I just loved it. <laughs> it was incredible. Poor Sarah. <laughs> so then I paired these two and I do talk more about Sarah later, but these mm-hmm. really worked well together. So it's beware the nice ones and break the cutie. So in the Blair Witch Project, we had Break the Hottie, which is like right. this person is confident, <clears throat> so they have to be brought down another peg. But in this one, Beware the Nice Ones, it's like sometimes, direct quote from tvtropes.com, thank you tvtropes.com, sometimes <laughs> trying to break the cutie has consequences. Sometimes the nicest person in the story gets pushed to the limit of what they can take and the results are not pretty. The sweeter, gentler, and more polite, more peaceful, and overall nicer a character is, the worse it will be for whoever's in the vicinity when they're subjected to one round two video of Break the Cutie. What was once a sweet and nice individual suddenly snaps and becomes something far worse than the big bad could have expected. <laughs> Sarah. Oh, Sarah. Sarah. Yeah, so I they broke Sarah. the cutie and then it became Beware the Nice Ones. Oh, I, you know what? Like, <laughs> I don't know why. Part of me just thinks that if I was in a horror movie, I'd hope that that would be me. I'm relatively nice. I'm a very kind person. <laughs> I would either be the comic relief, duh, or I would 100% be the one that they're like, oh, she's so cute. She's so sweet. And I'd be like, say it one more time. <laughs> I dare you. Say redhead one more time. Call me a cute redhead one more time. One more fucking time. <laughs> and then I'll snap. Oh my God, I love it. But I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. Nothing's, <laughs> no worries. Nothing's wrong. We're all good here. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Let's see. I'm trying to figure out which one to do next. Okay, so we have the cannibal larder. So, like, a oh. larder is, like, where you keep food, whatever. Uh, but yes, qualify, I knew that. I didn't. <laughs> I <had> no <laughs> like, idea. What the fuck is lard? He larder, and I just no- nodded, like, uh uh-huh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. It took me a minute. Like, I looked at this word for a while, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's where food is stored. Is it specifically where meat is stored? I don't know. I'm vegan. I don't have a larder that I know of. Real quick, speaking of words that we said wrong, dear, Kate and I were talking yesterday, and someone said the word petrichor. Oh, my God. And someone said, what does that mean? And I confidently told the whole group, dead bodies. (laughs) 
And then someone went, it's the smell of rain. Yep. <laughs> and I was yep. like, oh, <laughs> I don't know why I thought it was a dead body. But they were like, what's that mean? I was like, death. <laughs> and then when we were leaving, you missed this because it was your house. So you were not leaving with us. But we were like, oh, it's raining. I was like, yep, smell those dead bodies. <laughs> Absolutely dragging me, and I can't even hear you. Drag her ass. Drag her ass. Oh, my God. I was so confident, too. I was like, yep, death, baby. (laughs) They were just like, no, that's not even a little bit what that means. All right, do a trope. I've embarrassed myself. (laughs) A cannibal larder. There are three qualifying aspects for a cannibal larder. So it has to be played for gross-out horror. It can't Mm -hmm. be like the Soylent Green Factory where bodies disappear and then happen to be like a finished product it has to be fucking gross it has to be like blood flecked like moldy i don't even know it has to be disgusting it also has to be that the body parts are being stored to eat it can't be like okay well we're a black market organ harvesting thing we're gonna put these in their people's bodies whatever it has to be like these bodies were harvested and not just left here yeah And then they have to be from human or otherwise, like, sentient creatures or part of the collector's species. Mm -hmm. So if it's, like, a movie with no humans, (laughs) whatever the creature is that harvested the body parts, it has to be the same as that creature. So those are the qualifications for a cannibal larder, which is what Sarah falls into when she sees Holly being devoured Mm -hmm. and when she finds a bath. Ugh. Ugh. Then this one. So many bones. I had to do some research in because it's oh. called the Cerebus Callback. And I was like, Cerberus? Yeah. No. That's what, in my head, I was like, the dog? The dog? <laughs> the <Yeah>. dog? <laughs> I was like, I don't understand. This is a typo. It is not a typo. It is uh, a reference to a very long running comic series. It was like 70s oh. to the early aughts. And it's by this Canadian comic artist. Um, and it's called Cerebus the Aardvark. And it started as, like, a parody series, and then it got way more serious over time. Oh, no. And I haven't actually, like, looked into the topics covered, but I did see, like, a stack of the books, mm-hmm. and it's uh, hefty. And they say that it reflects the controversial opinions of the creator. And I don't know, based on the article, because I did not look super in-depth into this, if it's actually mm-hmm. controversial, where it's, like... He's a flat-out racist or, like, this type of thing. Or if it's, like, he believes that women are people. Ew. You know? So, like... (laughs) (laughs) Gross! I cannot speak to Cerebus the Aardvark, however serious or problematic it may be. But this trope is talking about when a previously lighthearted or happy or funny Mm -hmm. moment is shown again with a changed context that makes it very dark. So, in this case, we have the photo. Where they all take this timed photo of them on the porch, the six of them looking happy and shit. And then at the end of the movie, that photo is shown again in a much darker context because... Not so happy. Potentially one of them is alive, but arguably all of them are dead. Then, as is the way, we have Chekhov's gun, which is Juno's necklace and Sam's watch. Because Mm -hmm. those are like made a point of that you see them and then they come back. We've already talked about Chekhov's skills. Mm Mm-hmm. And then each of the falling tropes has a lot in it, but I want to introduce them as a unit just to show mm-hmm. how many horror tropes were packed into this movie. We have creepy cave, creepy child, cruel and unusual death, cruel twist ending, developing doomed characters, downer beginning, downer ending, I'm a humanitarian, mood whiplash, ice cream, final girl, 
gory discretion shot, and nothing is scarier. Wow, they really just got it all in there, didn't they? And that's just a selection of the ones that I liked. <laughs> there oh are more. Oh my god. And so, like, we talked about the gory discretion shot. Uh, <clears throat> god, which movie was it? Uh, it was where we don't see blood in it. Oh, was it it? Yeah. Yeah, where mm-hmm. it was, like, subverted when we actually do see a body. Right. But in this, like, the gory discretion shot is... Uh, I forget the first one, but the second one is when uh, she kills Beth. Oh, yeah. it's the very first one is one of the opening scenes where her family is killed in a car accident because you see the poles entering the windshield oh, yes. and yes, exiting you do. the headrest. And then so you gross. see blood outside of the car, Ugh. but you don't see anything else. So that's a gory discretion shot. Yep. And I, I knew in advance, because I write the content warnings, that there was going to be a very graphic car accident. And also because you warned me very kindly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I felt prepared for this moment because I grew up watching Twister on repeat. And there's a oh. similar car accident or like, it's not a car accident, but it's a thing that happens in Twister. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to spoil Twister for anyone, even though it's like 20 years old. I've so never you... seen Twister. Oh. So... <gasps> no, go for it. You can... I... Do you like Twister a lot? You seem like you really like Twister. I have three favorite movies that I ha... Yeah. Okay. So oh, this is Twister? Kate's vulnerability corner. Uh, so <gasps> The Princess Bride, Clue, and Twister. Those I are like... did not know that you liked mm-hmm. Twister. <laughs> I fucking love Twister. Okay, Kate. Here's a funny thing. I've never seen Twister. But when I worked at Universal, I worked next door to the Twister ride, so I had to hear the intro to the Twister ride and the ride itself going eight hours a day. Oh, God. So I can't tell anything about Twister, but if you want to know that ride, I could probably do it word for word. Woof. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wild. Well, we got to watch Twister. We have to watch Twister. And I don't want to scare... Uh, scare? I don't want to spoil this for you. <laughs> uh, so anyway... I felt prepared by an element of the Twister movie. Maybe we'll do a, a, a live screen of us watching Twister. Oh my <laughs> you God. love it so much. I love it so much. Okay, so moving on to the next group of tropes, because I am overwhelmed by my nostalgia from Twister. <laughs> so this group is focused on Sarah, her grief, and her descent into madness. We have the double meaning title, Howl of Sorrow, Man by its Man, Not So Different. <laughs> Rule of symbolism and through the eyes of madness. So, like with that one, like we're not sure if Sarah's a reliable narrator. Right. And then the man bites man and not so different is like she's becoming more and more like a crawler. Right. And then the descent is like the descent into a cave, the descent into madness. The madness. <laughs> yeah. And then foreshadowing, just everywhere. Foreshadowing everywhere. is everywhere. Everything is foreshadowing when they see Everything. a dead animal with Corvids eating it. When Becca Ugh. is listing off all of the things they could suffer from. Yep. Foreshadowing is like the name of this movie. It's like the descent. <laughs> foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. That's <laughs> like, I was making a hand motion for like the colon. The, the little, yeah, <laughs> like, like. This is a colon. <laughs> y'all can't see it, but we're doing it. And then we have rock bottom and what could possibly go wrong. And to me, these two work together. So rock bottom yeah. is a form of tempting fate. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked about it. And it's when Beth is trying to calm Sarah down. She's like, right. sort of saying, you have nothing left to fear. And then what could possibly go wrong is Juno saying, I've never been lost in my life. And we're like, okay, that's an All right, Juno. thing to say when you're about to go into an unexplored cave system. Juno made me so mad. <laughs> and I knew from the beginning, like, as soon as 
she got out of the water when the husband was helping her out. I was like, who's married to him? I can't tell. Right? And then you're like, oh. And then as soon as she was like, you seem distant. I was like, oh, he's fucking Juno. And yeah, then he takes was, the helmet off. I was like, yep. it's a tender way to take off a helmet, sir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh. And Juno's like unexpectedly vulnerable with him. She's like, oh, I can't feel my fingers. It was like, that's weird coming from the action girl to like right? complain about something. <laughs> Juno. Juno made me mad. Holly made me mad. Holly. Fucking Holly. Holly made me so mad. She's just that kid that's headstrong. Yeah, she just, like, would not stop doing everything. I was just like, stop. Pay attention for, like, a second. Like, yeah. ugh. But I still love them all. Maybe not Juno. No. (laughs) Maybe pretty mad. I I have just grudging respect for Juno because like yeah, even though you is. know that she's done horrific things and that she has contributed in some way to Sarah's trauma mm-hmm. you also see that she's a fucking badass and so you oh, see her like yeah. just crushing crawlers left and right and then she like mortally wounds Beth and you're like oh my god oh no and then Juno potentially through loyalty but probably through guilt she's like I am not leaving without Sarah and, like, throughout all of this, I think that Juno is not set up to be liked, but you no. can't hate her. That's it. I, I She was not set up to be liked, 100%. But, yeah, it's hard to hate her. And I think also it was interesting because she's uh, kind of supposed to be – she's painted to be, like, I don't think, I just do. Yep. Like, 100%. And that is 100% shown when she kills Beth. Yeah. She's not thinking. She's just doing what she knows she has to do next, which yeah. is – Attack the noise behind me. That's Beth. So, like, this whole thing. And then it's the same thing with, like, Sarah. She's just like, well, we can't leave without Sarah. We can't. We can't. And just blinded by, like, I I don't think about it. We just got to find her. I was like, if you had just left, she probably wouldn't have killed you. you." Like, (laughs) so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And then I have some other, like, just... I mean, they're not, like, useless, but they're just, like, very minor tropes where it's, like, the yeah. dramatic necklace removal. Right. But to me, something that, like, wasn't listed on TV tropes but I think is arguable is moral event horizon, where it's, like, mm. this is the point of no return. It's, like, I think it's originally, like, the event horizon is, like, the point in a black hole that you descend into where you cannot get out anymore. Right. And so a moral event horizon is, like, you're irredeemable after you commit this act. And she stabs Juno in the leg and leaves her to die, being devoured by crawlers. So it's like, I think that's the moral event horizon for Sarah. Oh, definitely. And she does it really slow, too. And there's that buildup of, like, what is she going to do? Like, I'm not sure. At first, they don't show it going towards Juno. So you're like, oh, maybe there's a crawler behind Juno and she's going to get it. And then you're like, oh, maybe she's just going to kill Juno. And then you're like, oh, fuck, she just hurt her legs. Now she's stuck. Yeah. It was just worse than what you, like, anticipate. Yeah. It's just Ugh. one of those moments. Yeah. That's definitely when it was like, that's it, Sarah. That's, you've, you're different now, man. <laughs> you're different. <laughs> you look different. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think that, like, the more bleak ending is the U.S. version, where she 100%. survives and she to live with it. Yeah. I mean, they show her just picturing Juno, knowing that, like, you did that. Yeah, and, and like, she you can't... hear Juno screaming as she leaves her. Yes, and you also can't, you don't see Juno's death, so you, you can't say for sure how long she had to, like, stay down there. Yeah. Like, did she run away long enough to, like, bleed out? Like, what happened? It's awful. 
Yep. So those are the tropes I had. And I'm just wondering, like, if there's someone that's listening that is, like, has not seen it. And we're just like, there's this murder and there's blood. And they're like, where are they? (laughs) (laughs) I I can't wait. I want someone to listen to this without seeing it and just see what you guys think. (laughs) I'm curious. (laughs) No lie. I told my mom and my aunt, do not listen to this episode. Do not watch this movie. And they're both, like, huge supporters. They're both super sweet. But I was like, you will both hate it. Because first of all, claustrophobia. Second of all, just excessive gore. I'm not even that claustrophobic. Like, it's not... I mean, like, I I don't like it for sure. But this got me bad. When I first saw it, I hated it. The water... I can't. I was, like, miserable. It's so hard to breathe watching this movie. Yeah. Goodness. Oh, boy. So, how are we going to rate this movie? Okay, I wrote this down. Tell me what you think. I'm excited. Uh, a primal screams. <laughs> Inspired. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. We must. Huh. I, okay, I'm saying at least 4.5 primal screams. I think it, you know, the name of the game is arbitrary ratings. And right. there's no consistency from movie to movie. I'm giving this five primal screams. Whoa! Whoa! I... Oh, yeah. So I had a lot of turning points in this movie where I was like, this is really cool. I love the symbolism. Ew, eyes. Wow, I really like this. <laughs> so for me, it was a journey. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I I mean, it holds up. I saw it when I was younger and thought it was, like, terrifying. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think four and a half or five. I, I just because it holds up. It was really good. Like, yeah. I really don't have that many qualms. Like, I just... Just really enjoyed it. And you're right. It takes on a journey, especially now that, like, I know it could all be in Sarah's mind. That just makes me want to go back. It has that go back and watch factor. That's great. Yeah. Rewatch bonus. Yeah. So even though I know what happens and even though, like I said, the monster is not really ruined for me just because of how dim and weird the lighting is. It doesn't show it enough for me to be like, eh, I'm bored. I'm always a little scared of it. So, yeah, I'm going to say four and a half to five for sure. Hell Yeah. I like this one. It was an experience. And, like, it's listed on Harper Bazaar's, like, list of five, nope, 50 scariest horror movies of all time. Five and 50 are quite different. I can count. But <laughs> I was, like, one of my ideas for Nord, Nord, Nerd Corner Nord. was, Nord, one of my ideas for Nerd Corner was, like, okay, well, what do humans fear and why? And, like, how are we united by different types of fear? Mm-hmm. And, obviously, I did not end up going with that. But I was, like, okay, what are the scariest movies? Because, like, he was, like, I want to make the scariest movie possible. And I was, like, well, did he? And people say yes. <laughs> people yeah. say this is one of the scariest movies of all time. I mean, he really put everything into it. Yep. Monsters, heights, claustrophobia, mm-hmm. grief, loss, like, Yep. Every betrayal. Like he was just like, what can I pack into this movie? And uh-huh. and somehow did it in such a cohesive way. Props to you, man. That was yeah. it's really cool for sure. It doesn't feel like it's trying to put things in. You know what I mean? Everything yeah. has a reason to be there. It's not unnecessary. It's not like, and here's a great. clown. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, oh, careful, now there's a cliff. It's like, there's a reason that there's a yep. height. There's a reason that they're claustrophobic. Like, everything is in there for a reason. It's so good. Yes. So it's safe <sighs> to say that we enjoyed this movie. We did. <laughs> and we hope that other folks enjoyed it. 
And that wraps up our discussion of The Descent. If you enjoyed your time with us, we would greatly appreciate it if you'd uh, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. That really does help other people follow us or find us at all. And like a lot. Also, oh, so much. <laughs> and we also really love reading the reviews. Yeah, I read Books all of so them. Sweet. And it's just great. I like it a lot. Especially people who write like, I don't usually like horror movies, but I do listening to this. I love yeah. that. Because it's like, yeah, like, it's good. <laughs> oh, that just warms my heart. It warms my heart. And then you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Just School mm-hmm. With It. You can check out our extended show notes on our website, JustGoWithItPod.com. Or maybe you can even check out the Patreon that we talked about earlier, and it's patreon.com. Good stuff. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our incredible patrons, Kim, Kelly, Nihar, and Will. We couldn't do this without them, and we are so very grateful for them on this journey with us. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all are the best. Let's all just let out one good primal scream for the end. Ah! Ah! (laughs) (laughs) What a sad primal scream I have. Oh, no. You're like... Ah! Wow. <laughs> this is primal! I'm scared! Oh, how spooky! <laughs>